Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always with Managing Editor, good friend and all-round fantastic person, Richard Hill. How are you? Well, hey, Matt, I am fantastically uh, excited person today. So hello, everybody. It's, it's, it's great to be here. But a, a wonderful colleague and, and someone who uh, I was able to befriend to some degree but haven't seen for some years is our very, very, very special guest today. Go on, surprise me. Tell me who it is. <laughs> we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Stephen Porges, who I haven't met, and so I'm very excited to meet him today. Now, for those two people out there that don't know That's who right. Stephen Porges <laughs> is, he's the originator of the polyvagal theory, and he has just done a ton of work, which is extremely valuable to the world of psychotherapy. And, and mental health in, in general. And so very excited to talk to him today. Yeah, and we could read his credentials, but we'd be here all day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was an assistant professor when he was very young. It was like he was in the early 20s. He's just a totally unassuming person who has found the genius uh, and interpreted and put it forward. And we want to talk to him about his new book. Yes, uh, Stephen's new book, Polyvagal Safety, Attachment, Communication, Self-Regulation. Cool. Well, there's no one better to talk to about it than Stephen Porges himself. So let's scoot off over to America. Dr. Stephen Porges, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's great to meet you. Well, thank you, Matthew, and thank you, Richard. I'm looking forward to an interesting dialogue with you. Yes, it's great to see you again, Stephen. It's been, it's been a few years, but uh, yeah. you look exactly the same. <laughs> now, looking and feeling may be two different things, and that may be a good way of, of segueing into polyvagal theory, but it, it's how we feel that really counts. I'm doing fine. And you're doing fine. But but it's this, I mean, um, we'd love to talk to you all the time, but we do have a new book that's coming out, and uh, that's an important thing to talk about. So uh, it's looking at everything through the lens of, of polyvagal. Can you give us a bit of a, an insight into what, what this book's sure. doing and why you brought it about? Sure. The book is called Polyvagal Safety, and actually the title came from Norton because they saw that as the underlying theme. And what the book has is has some is as unique chapters written for the book, but it has a collection of papers that I've written for various venues and various with various collaborators that have taken the principles of polyvagal theory and applied them to very very. Uh, let's say, disparate areas. And what you start to see is how the principles of the theory are helpful to therapists who are group psychotherapists. They're helpful to people who are dealing with uh, anxiety issues, dealing with autism. You start seeing the perspective of how a theory can be embedded in what people are doing as opposed to people doing a specific structured intervention. They have their, their toolkit, their interventions that they have developed or they have taught or learned, and they then embed uh, the principles of polyvagal theory. And that's part of what we'll start discussing. What are they embedding? Yeah, and this is the, I mean, Matt and I uh, uh, bang the, the drum constantly of, of that we are an integrated system yeah. and that we certainly can look at separate elements and discuss yeah. those. But then we need to, you know, it's, it's like a mechanic who takes out a carburetor and improves it. they got to put it back in the car. And this is what I see happening in this book. Yeah, but what you said, Richard, is extremely insightful the notion of a system and the world that we're in is a world about fixing without respecting the system. Mm -hmm. So we try to we basically externalize treatment as if it as if the individual doesn't count. We apply it to the individual to fix them. What polyvagal theory emphasizes is that underlying the the structure that we see the person, their underlying neuroregulation of their physiology determines how they react to the world, how they react to intervention, how they react to their spouses, to their children. And if we can uh, literally uh, intervene in a way that changes their physiological state, calms them down, puts them into a, a state of safety, they become accessible. And then when they're accessible, then they can be modified in a more pro-social way. And the... Uh, 
the contradiction, or not the contradiction, the, the opposite of that is if they're in the physiological state of defense, they're resistant to everything whether they're in the classroom trying to learn or they're trying to, in a sense, learn about themselves as they try to transform themselves into a more pro-social, interacted, connected human being. Right. Beautiful. So let's drill down then to some some specifics. Uh, Vagal pathways, portals to compassion. Yeah. I would love to hear about this. Okay. So if we start thinking about the history of humanity and let's say traditions within every culture, uh, whether they talk about chanting or breathing or prayer or meditation, they're functionally actually recruiting vagal pathways to calm the body down. They're actually performing neural exercises of regulating physiology with this newer mammalian, this innovation that mammals have uh, that enables them to calm themselves down. And we'll drill that down even further in a few moments. But mammals, especially humans, evolved a unique uh, neural pathway uh, that regulate their autonomic nervous system. And this pathway is functionally not only a pathway for compassion, it's a pathway for sociality, or it's a pathway for our own humanity. And what it is, it's a neural mechanism through which we turn off our defense systems. And the cues of turning off defense, which is a fight-flight aggressiveness, but it's also turning that, when you turn that off, you start creating a state that enables accessibility and authenticity. And so now you have what I call co-regulation. But this co-regulation is really the journey of a social mammal. And that is we want the other person in our life so that our physiology, it's not like we planned this, but there's this bi-directional uh, co-regulation of each other's state. We mitigate our threat responses by being safe with another individual, or I often will say appropriate mammal, meaning that you could have a dog or a cat or a horse, and some people are feel safer in co-regulating with, with other mammalian species. But the pathways for compassion really was a deconstruction of what we have learned about uh, uh, in the world of compassion, in the world where people talk about uh, uh, yoga or breathing or chanting, and it deconstructs that and says what you're really doing. You're doing what you think you're doing, but there's actually a set of uh, predictable structures are being used that have powerful impact on your physiology. And they're functionally neural exercises of this neuromammalian vagal circuit to turn off our states of threat. So when we become compassionate, we are better uh, able to witness, to support, and be in the present, our presence. It, it next to another or in this, the psychological space of another has a healing capacity when we are in a state of safety and that we often see that as compassion. But if we are evaluative, which is our culture, whether we talk about medicine, medicine is always evaluative and everyone gets anxious about getting medical tests. Education is evaluative all the time. Work environments are evaluative. And I start to use this concept of a matrix of threat cues. So like the movie in the matrix, but it's threat cues. And the question is, those threat cues create a defensive wrapper around us. Our body is now prepared to be defensive. And what would happen if we were able to take the wrappers off? And so the vagal pathways, portals to compassion, is really talks about basic properties that, let's say, chanting and prayer and breath have used to take the wrapper off, to allow the core of humanity to be experienced. Yeah. When we've talked about this, uh, you know, a little bit before in the sense of, you know, this externalized evaluation process that we do and the the nature of the way we, we, we create um, we, we shift the framework of responsibility, of response yeah. 
ability outside of ourselves. Uh, I mean, Milton Erickson talked about this, you know, the task of the therapist is to put the responsibility back into the, to the client. And this is a, this is a great struggle. You, you lose this engagement with the the bagel. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not putting it back to the individual in the way that an Ericksonian model would say in doing that, you're starting to take responsibility, which can turn into blame and shame. Yeah. And that's something we don't want to do. What it's saying is that, our nervous system, the neural network, the system of our body actually provides the platform upon which we process information. And if we can change that state, just like we would freeze water, it would become ice, or if we boil water, it becomes steam. Different properties of those three different states, yet same molecular structure. And our physiology shifts state. And when we shift state, we become basically different organisms. We, mm. at one state, we're accessible, uh, we're supportive, we're compassionate, we're creative, we're spiritual, we're all the good things that we talk about in humanity. We're loving. We move to this other state and we're aggressive and we take no prisoners, you know, this the whole work ethic. We can't sit still because we're wasting time if we sit still to the level of the survivors of trauma, which is too much, I'm gone, I'm out of here. Mm. I'm shutting yeah. down. Yeah, this, this orientation uh, uh, yeah. variation, but the orientation is not only perhaps in your, your cognitive thinking, if you're meditating yeah. or doing some process, yeah. but the nature, it's the body that also orientates. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. And, but we even even though somatic-oriented therapies are where you know, the world is moving, it's not just it's not body and brain or body and mind. It's the integration of the two because we functionally have only one nervous system. It talks to itself. It's bidirectional. So how our body is feeling affects how we think, how we think affects how our body functions. And so we can't use terms like, oh, you have a, you have a comorbidity because you have, you know, frequently with certain types of disorders, we have comorbidities. No, the comorbidity is part of the neural system that is dysregulated by the intrusion. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a redefining of mental health issues. It's not, it's being careful not to separate mental and physical health, which has gotten mental health into such a problem mm-hmm. where, where the medical community are frequently and apparently still is saying to some individuals, it's all in your head. Right. I mean, yeah. and that is in a sense, what does that mean? And that goes into the sense that means they're responsible. That's how their body interprets it. They're responsible for their illness. Now, how does that make a person feel? Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about um, stiffering states. Yeah. Now, if we're in a state of fear and, mm-hmm. you know, we're always evaluating a, a dangerous environment and I don't know, we're hiding facial features and say, mm-hmm. let's say a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yes, let's make one up. Yeah. Let's make one up. <laughs> so, well, I know, I, I, forgive me, I'm going to jump all over the place here. So I'm yeah. basically jumping to the back of the book here. But what, yeah. what's going on in this, this obvious state of heightened fear in the pandemic? And we're, we're okay. hiding facial cues, all sorts of things. Okay, let's start off by saying what does the what is the pandemic? Okay, mm. it is a threat cue. Yeah, it's a real yes. threat cue. So we can evaluate that the virus can kill us. It can if we survive, we may have a long term, let's say, a chronic illness effort, which may be lethargy or depression. We may it's a, it's not a positive bit. So we know it is a threat. And if we now think about threats in the history of humanity, when we're under threat, how have we mitigated threat as a species? We've gone to others and said, I'm under threat. And they will say, come into my arms, literally or figuratively, and I will take care of you. I will comfort you. I am here for you. And everyone, in terms of our normal, let's say, social development, has a groups of friends and where you, in a sense, discuss good things and often bad things, but you, you are heard and you feel listened to, you feel witnessed. During the pandemic, that all changed. Hmm. So our nervous system is really in what I would say 
contradictory uh, conflict. It's in a conflict situation. It says, get away from the danger, but how do I mitigate my threat reactions? And it's being greatly limited. And I think this is extraordinarily uncomfortable for many people. And remember, many, especially the U.S., I mean, even though we are double vaccinated, it is extremely risky around Florida. I mean, the numbers are extraordinarily high in the ICU. The intensive care units are filled. And there's a reactionary behavior towards masking and getting vaccination. So it's not with a public health model. It's a, it's a community model in which we're all in it together. Something happened along the way in the United States, and it became vaccinators versus non-vaccinators. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, so it is a another threat issue coming on. But if you even see the, the non-vaxxers or never-vaxxers, see them as being in a state of threat, a lot of the behavior becomes predictable. Don't tell me what to do because I don't trust you. That's really what they say. I do not trust you. So the pandemic has created this situation. And the other point I wanted to bring up is that many, many uh, home units, families, or however people are living within homes, are not the safest, most supportive uh, co-regulated environments. So many, many partnerships don't work out well. I mean, you know, marriages. Uh, many children aren't safe in their own homes. Mm-hmm. We know that. So, but what are we doing? We're assuming that the home will be safe enough for everyone, and then we, on top of that are having children homeschooled during the pandemic. And so they no longer have this opportunity to literally co-regulate with their peers. So the issue is, yes, there's threat. And yes, there's not the opportunity to, in a sense, mitigate the feelings of threat through social interaction, which is the go-to strategy that we have evolved to have. Now, I know you want to go one place else. You want to go with the mask. I I could hear that issue. I'm going to say it's not as bad as you think (laughs) because uh, the upper part of the face is the part that's most important in sending cues of safety. So the lower part of the face can actually be an aggressive part because it has a biting apparatus. So it's there. And again, you you have interest in atypical or uh, 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 atypical development like autism. And with autism, the upper face is literally dampened. It's not really working. But the lower face is where everything's expressed. And even when they try to learn to smile, it's all down here and not up there. And that's why it doesn't work. So when we, because we have a lot of voluntary control down here, of course, it was a tool of, of defense, but up higher, it's much more spontaneous. The the fire in someone's eyes, the exuberance, that's a spontaneous response. It's very hard to, let's say, uh, to get that under an operant control. So our bodies. Look at the upper part of the face. Look around the eyes. There's a muscle called the orbicularis. Our eyes will automatically go there to pick up cues. And we don't even often don't know we're doing this, but our body does. So when we see the cues, our body comes down. The other part is voice. We still have voice. And voice is powerful. If we think about the mother and her infant, if the infant's crying, the mother uses a very prosodic voice, uses gesture and calmness, and the baby calms down and basically turns off the threat reactions. And this is a powerful clue to us in terms of how we can develop stealth-like interventions to turn off threat reactions and how we can become better parents better spouses, better mentors, better therapists. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, this really uh, is segueing um, quite nicely to something that I really wanted to talk about as well, which is maybe something people aren't so aware uh, of is the work that you've been doing with the uh, with the inner ear, with the the, the nature of sound, yeah. uh, and you do beautiful. You, you've got a lovely section about it in the in the latter part of the of the book of the safe and sound. 
protocol. Um, and this uh, this extends to a few things, you know, this, this extends to, to the ways of altering um, uh, behaviour in an implicit way, but also particularly in some of the work you've done in autism. I wonder yeah. if we can sort of just sort of rapidly jump across what seems to be jumping, but it's actually all connected. It's, it's always connected, <laughs> but yeah. you know, the job is to explain to other people that it's a common theme, but yeah. let's go with it. So in the book, there's a very short chapter that I wrote for a um, online magazine called uh, Autism Spectrum, or it's, it's funded by uh, the Simons Foundation. And they asked me to write about what I was doing. And I started off by really writing that uh, the families of autistic individuals have gotten a raw deal from the academic and the research community. Because the real problems with autism from the family's perspective is this whole issue of behavioral state regulation. Mm. And all the research money went into genetics, went into pharmaceuticals, went into a model that there's something damaged with the individual and it can be fixed or we can find that damage and then we can learn how to fix it. As opposed to looking at the proximal uh, disruption, which is behavioral state regulation. So if you could con- uh, reduce or let's say mitigate state regulation disorders, tantrums, uh, you know, shutdowns, all the behaviors that the parents, you know, and the teachers and all the caregivers have great difficulty dealing with. If you could deal with that, reduce that, reduce the frequency, and perhaps even just totally remove it in some cases, what would the quality of life be for those who carry that diagnosis and their caregivers and their family? It would become much better. So the point was, uh, why aren't we even asking the questions about the what I would say core features and that is state regulation? And part of the answer is that many mental health disorders have core feature problems like state regulation. And if we start looking at the how you get your money for your research, it basically starts with advocacy groups. So advocacy groups put pressure on federal agencies to put money into autism or money into schizophrenia or let's say anxiety disorders. And what you start finding out is the core feature that crosses all of these is state regulation and you can't get money to study state regulation so i used to bury it when i i was well funded for decades but i buried it in my proposals and the issue is i was trying to say that there are common features and there's generalizability in terms of mechanisms across diagnostic categories and if we can develop a strategy to basically mitigate threat reactions life changes so this goes now into the, the acoustic intervention. And the acoustic intervention is functionally, uh, you can think of it as an acoustic uh, vagal nerve stimulator. You can think of it as a neuromodulator. Uh, it, is, it gets at the system of by giving it cues of safety and it starts to turn off threat reactions. So what it does, it, it, if we look at how the mother's voice works, there's an intonation, there's a, mel- a melody or melodic features. And if the melodic features are there, the baby calms down. We've just completed a study uh, basically looking, using the, uh, there's a paradigm called the still face. It was developed by Edtronic. And yeah. basically it has three segments. There's two or three minutes, two minutes each, in which the mother is playing with the baby. The mother then just freezes her face and then two minutes later re-engages the baby. And what happens is that still face or the flatness removes the interaction, the cues of safety that the baby was looking for. And babies will, at six to nine months, will reach out to the mother, try to say, are you okay, literally, Mm. you know, engaging. And then may go into tantrum. The interesting part is we measured the baby's heart rate and we looked at the acoustic characteristics of the mother's voice. If the mother's voice had more prosody, more positive affect in the voice, more melody, more intonation, the baby's heart rates went down. If the mother had less of that, the baby's heart rates went up. So we could actually uh, see how effective the mother was in calming their baby. 
And in a sense, the mothers are doing the same thing. They're talking to their babies and they're trying to calm them. But the baby's nervous system is making a discrimination. And in polyvagal theory, we call that neuroception, where the nervous system is evaluating risk in the environment through a variety of cues. And one of the cues is intonation of voice. It's not a cognitive perception. It's not a decision-making. It's built into our basically our DNA, that intonation of voice calms us. Look at a mother with a baby. Look at a, I'm going to say now, an adult male with their puppy. It will be the same thing. We will talk to the childlike individuals with these intonations, and they will calm down. So we have a toolkit that we know intuitively that will turn off threat reactions. But do we use that in educational settings? Seldom. Uh, sometimes in therapeutic settings, we use that in in spousal interactions, rarely. You know, so it's like we end up saying we're cognitive. It's the words I say that are important. But our body doesn't really care what the words are. It wants the words to sound melodic. Yeah, it, It's really kind of a paradox of, 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 let's say, the trajectories that our Western society has gone on. It's become extraordinarily cognitive. That is, if I can use words, if I can name it, I can tame it. If I can use words, I'll get insight. If I get insight, I'll turn off all these bodily things. Well, that may work well if our body's in generally in a safe state, but it doesn't work well in autism. So like with autism, where they use a lot of behavioral control, behavioral it doesn't produce social behavior <clears throat> so you can't reward with an aba strategy uh i spun you can't reward or develop spontaneous social activity but if you use these types of acoustic stimulation even autistic individuals let's say individuals who carry an autistic diagnosis they will start spontaneously engaging the person in the room with them when they're listening to this. And when it's off, it becomes part of their, in a sense, temperamental features. So even though when they're locked into this state of defense, and a lot of autistic individuals are like this and like this, they're telling you that they are in a state of threat. And so the behavioral model was get those hands away from the ears, you know, engage, give you more reward. It's disrespectful of the physiology of that individual. Yet if you look at them, even when you're trying to shape the behavior, you know they're in great states of fear. Some of them will even be shaking. And you, the issue is you have to respect their bodily response and the state they're in. And the interventions have to be tailored to change state. Now, the safe and sound protocol, which is this acoustic one, acoustic intervention, I view it as a stealth intervention because it doesn't require any conscious interpretation. It just requires a passive pathway of listening. And this is, in a sense, there. it's not hard. You're not giving them a task to do other than to listen. And it, interestingly, they will. many will just sit still and listen and get pulled right into the modulations. So what it does is does a computer alteration uh, with various filters of the acoustic music. So it is literally a neural exercise of the middle ear muscles. So in the middle ear, you have muscles, but those muscles are regulated by a branch of the facial nerve that's linked to the nerve regulating the orbicularis oculi, the upper part of your face. So when they start to listen, they start getting this engaged look. And that nerve in the brainstem, the area where it controls the middle ear muscles and the upper part of the face, is linked to the nerve controlling the vagal regulation of your heart. So when this system starts to work, it starts to calm you down. And that system is linked to the vagal and pharyngeal regulation of the larynx and the pharynx, which are actually vagal nerves. So what you're doing is by piping in these modulated sounds, you're getting into a brainstem area that creates an integrated social engagement system that includes ingestion. So when you look at the world of autism, of course, their selective eating is one of the major features. What happens after the safe and sound protocol? They start exploring food. Yeah. yeah. And we, we, we really hope that you'll be pleased with the chapter we wrote 
in our new book coming out next year cool. with Norton's about this and trying to uh, mm-hmm. uh, bring this awareness of the structures and the connections and the yeah. uh, and all those facial nerves and and things because uh, I mean I've been uh, or Matt we've both uh, been enamoured with everything since the nineties you know uh, yeah. since since yeah. you brought it out so yeah. this. This work is is just changing the the face. If I remember, you you were having kids that were totally unresponsive and unmanageable, and within a very short space of time, they became. Uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, I saw what I would call miracles, and didn't really want to talk about them because, I, in fact, I'll give you a short story. One, a a psychologist when I was in Chicago, a psychologist from another medical school. Uh, brought his child into my laboratory for the intervention. The child was, quote, autistic, severe. He had a a testable IQ of 70 at that time. He goes through the five one-hour sequence and is doing really well. The father calls me, and he's pestering me for more. I said, no, it's a research project. That's all I can do. And then I don't hear from him. And a year or so later, I decide I would contact him because I wanted to create a board uh, because I had create a program within a school for autism. I want some external advisory. And he said, my son's no longer no longer autistic. He tests with 140 IQ now. No one knows he had that diagnosis. We shifted school systems. I don't want any of this out there. Wow. And you find this has to do with the evaluation and shame. Rather than saying, this is miraculous. I want to be helpful in getting yep. this transitioned so uh, this was a reaction uh so the point is we have to be concerned now there is a parent facebook group on about the safe and sound protocol that was started by a woman in in gainesville florida who had an adopted son that was extraordinarily aggressive and he was hitting her a lot and they were discussing institutionalizing the child she had the safe and sound protocol went through it uh brought him to a, pri- a provider and he was in a sense totally transitioned he's mainstreamed and i saw a video of the kid this is a, a loving humorous child and so you can see these transformations that are not about l- the way that we were taught that they were learned or they're damaged they're stuck in the state and the state is a state of defense stuck. can you get stay, mm. can, you, can you get them out of that state of defense I was involved with researching autism from, I guess, the late 1980s, and the view was to break to break the corridor or the boundary. And since uh, therapists were extremely aggressive with autistic kids, and since the feeling that they had to break through, mm-hmm. so there'd be you know uh, at times anger or uh, you know. You making sure you the child understood that there's going to be punishment if they blocked without understanding that this is not a disinterest. This was because sound was hurtful to them. Mm. Yeah. So you've taken natural, calming prosody, created this intervention. Are we able to see now proving the intervention works? Are we able to be more instructive to people in how to sort of more innately speak? I think this is, uh, okay, when I first developed it, I didn't want to distribute it. I Mm. wanted to teach the lessons that you're really talking about. I wanted people to see that there were principles. And I used to say when I would do workshops, if you're asking for the intervention, you haven't really uh, listened to what I was saying. There are principles here about how we interact with human beings. And we're, again, we're into this community-wide model that things have to be fixed with something external. And I, I basically felt I had to be real careful. And fortunately, I met people. This was integrated listening systems, and they were just that they had the right, uh, let's say, heart for yeah. me to allow them to uh, be involved with this because I was very protective, and they've done a good job. And we are actually, what I wanted to also mention is we're now doing uh, feasibility or let's say clinical trials. One is with Parkinson's disorder and which is really kind of remarkable because uh, uh, it's telling you that these disorders that we see, one is is Parkinson's and the other one's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, especially joint hypermobility. And they have lots and lots of dysautonomia, lots of gut pain, and the theory is that the dysautonomia 
which is a part of both of those. And when you have dysautonomia, dysregulation, autonomics, you often get that reflection in the face and in the voice because it's broadcasting physiological state in our voice and in our face. And what we're, what the theory is, and this is in a sense, when the next book comes out, yes. it will really be about what I call the piggybacking of symptoms. So I think this autonomia or these autonomic de, uh, destabilizations, whether it's autism, Ehlers-Danlos, or Parkinson, are not really the disorder. They're the body's reaction to having the disorder, yeah. whether it is a path. And in fact, we're seeing this with COVID as well. The, long, the long-term consequences of COVID have nothing to do with the disease. The virus is healed. It's a dysautonomia. The autonomic nervous system is dysregulated. And the issue is, why is it dysregulated? Is it damaged? Probably not. It just hasn't gotten the cues to come back on board. It doesn't know that your body's safe. It went into these defensive strategies, but those defensive, just like trauma. So in the world of trauma, we all know that people's autonomic nervous system gets stuck in a defensive state when it doesn't need to. There is a sense they see and react to the world as if the world is there to hurt them when the threat is no longer there. It's the same thing, I believe, with many types of diseases. And it's an interesting model because it means that many of the features of disease, so we talk about Parkinson's and we're talking about Ehlers-Danlos and autism, many of the features of defense can be mitigated through procedures like the safe and sound protocol and that's what we're working on but, i mean parkinson himself said that initially that he thought it was more about the gut and and issues with with gut to brain communications than actually brain diminishments but you know now we're still re now we're reinvestigating that well it's it's an interesting story because what we're finding is that when when uh, a parkinson's person starts listening to ssp almost instantaneously their face changes and their voice changes and they become yeah. socially engaged. But now the issue is that is a that that system is the container that keeps that sympathetic defense system in a mode where you can now be social. But in Parkinson's, that system, once that system's capped off, the body gets really uh, destabilized. It's so the Parkinson's. physiology says i need to tilt over i need to tense up the muscles and that's creating this literally a battle that when we turn on that social engagement system which is easily accessible it puts them in great discomfort because of the skeletal muscle bit and what we're learning is if you move really really slowly which means it could be a week for an hour you know it could be a few seconds a day uh the system starts, it's like somatic experiencing uh, metaphors where you uh, feel it and then you resolve it. You get triggered, you resolve it, but you can't do too much. And the safe sound protocol for these disorders may be working that way. Wow. This is such an encouraging message that we can literally speak to the nervous system for healing. Yeah. 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 Well, you see, let me kind of give you the, let's say the 2011 story on this. So, so, you know, the theory came out in 1995. Uh, My own ideas I thought were, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting, but I thought it was also in a sense derivative because it was built on the science of, of comparative neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. I didn't think it was a paradigm shift. But as the years went on and as I started to understand and as I became educated through my interactions in the clinical community, especially in the world of trauma, I started to realize what was going on. And that is when we shift into certain states, we lose our capacity to be a social species. So I started to now reinterpret the phylogenetic journey to sociality. And that phylogenetic journey to sociality is predicated on having a neural system that turns off threat reactions. And that neural system happens to be linked with the facial muscles and voice. So that turning off a threat is sociality. So we start seeing that if we're in threat, we're no longer social. But if we are social, we can turn off threat. And when we turn off threat, we support 
homeostatic functions, health, growth, and restoration. So we no longer have to talk about comorbidities. We have to talk about turning off threat reactions. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So coming back to, you know, the pandemic, we have to be um, really turning on the social system um, more so than in a normal time, right? Well, okay, we're, in a sense, we have to really respect who we are. I don't mean individually, but as a species. So, in a sense, we're very well designed or evolved, whatever terminology you're comfortable with, to deal with disruption. You know, it's part of our evolutionary heritage. It's no big thing. It might feel like a big thing at the moment, but we have wonderful resilience and recovery systems. The question we haven't really grope with or really come to uh, understood is how much disruption can we take before it interferes with our recovery? Right. Okay. So, so first of all, we want to start by redefining what stress is. As we use words like anxiety and stress, they become psychological constructs that have a life unto their own. If anxiety is really our labeling of our feelings when our body's in the state of threat, it becomes really a simple understanding of that. Mm. So we have to, in a sense, change our language. Stress is another complicated one because stress could have been operationally defined as a disruption of homeostasis. Mm. It could have been just as simple as that. And then you could have transitory stressors, which are disrupt homeostasis for short periods of time. Then you have chronic and toxic type of stressors, which in a sense are saying the nervous system has recalibrated itself and now it's stuck in a defense mode. So we could see this literally visually with the physiological tracing and we could create a language that would be helpful to people monitoring their own bodies and in a sense developing strategies to move themselves out of it. So given those the, those trajectories, we have uh, what I start talking about are neural exercises. And so like in the book, I talk about play. I talk about play not in a way that is a distractor, but it's a neural exercise that promotes the development of resilience. And so we, especially in terms of our children and school systems, we have minimized that important role of play, which is we call, you know can be has to be social. In fact, we have taken the word play and now allow uh, uh, parallel play to be play when it's not play. We allow computers to be play when it's not play or Game Boys or toys uh, without an interactive component with another human being. It's that interactive component of play that is the neural exercise. And that will promote resilience and state regulation that will enable disruptions of homeostatic functions, stress reactions. It will enable them to be have a more facilitatory recovery limb. Yes, yes, we talk about that, that also this that play as the, that unregulated interaction on a social level uh, that allows for a, a serendipity and um, for information to emerge in that more uh, comfortable way. Well, the interesting part is when you watch play as an informed observer, it has lots of structure. Even Even if you watch pets play, it has reciprocity. It has co-regulation and it has awareness that you can injure the other. So if you watch dogs or cats, they're always socially referencing with their face to ensure that specific touches or bites are not aggressive. And if you watch children play, that's what they're looking at also. And this is why, uh, now we go back to the question of autism, autistic individuals on the playground are often not welcomed into the play circles because they tend to lose awareness of other in the play environment and people get hurt. Yeah. So we have to understand the interpretation of whether it is a defensive one to exclude where I don't want to get hurt versus how do we start including and allowing and creating opportunities for individuals who have the diagnosis to get the benefits of the neural exercises of play. And we can also think in terms of dance movement therapies, which incorporate movement and social engagement. 
Yeah. 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 There, there was, there, I, I'm just remembering a, a, an extraordinary video clip I saw of some kids in play and they were just this sort of spontaneous, unregulated, and their father had obviously raked up all the leaves from the, 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 the fall leaves and all the kids were playing around and picking up and throwing it around, which was terribly naughty and bad. But there was one little boy who was really struggling with the um, with with what that meant and he, he wasn't participating and he wasn't going, but he could see him, you know, increasing his agitation. And yeah. the most extraordinary thing was he didn't he didn't quite have the the as the Perhaps he had something on the spectrum, but he uh, couldn't join them. And strangely, he picked up a bag. There was a paper bag on the side, put it over his head and just started running around, you know, so he isolated himself. Actually, it was very, I mean, it was terrible. He ran into a tree but uh, (laughs) fell over. And then everybody came over and joined in with him. It was a uh, because of that, uh, that, that desire to help and become connected. Yeah. Yeah, but his movement was also, again, our misinterpretation of movement in our culture. We want kids to sit still. Yes. Some of them need to move, but they need to move in a social way. And again, that's why team sports, where you are socially engaging either with voice or face, social referencing, is really a very beneficial neural exercise. Mm-hmm. Or even playing like tennis or ping pong, where you're making direct eye contact with the other and trying to anticipate their intentions. It's really a wonderful uh, set of exercises. Mm. Now, I'm just uh, conscious of the time, uh, so I don't want to miss anything. So as we sort of wrap up, is what do we need to cover that we haven't covered yet? Uh, what do you but feel The like? wrap up to me is that our physiological state is our intervening variable, meaning it stands between the external stimuli or the context of the world with people and our response to that context. Our physiological state in a sense biases how we react and we have to appreciate that and we have to be aware of that and we have to be aware that this operates in other people. So most people will say, well, I have a headache or I have a stomach ache or I have palpitations, I can't go to that party. But we that's at the extreme. We have to understand that often, especially kids at school, where they'll talk about their gut hurts and what they're really telling you, that they're in a state of fear to go to school. Mm-hmm. And the issue is, why are they in a state of fear? And many of them feel that they may be bullied or they may be injured. They're telling you a truthful, valid uh, reflection of their own experience. So what we want to really do with a, with a polyvagal perspective is to honor and respect the individual's response. I, I have played around with some of these ideas. So like uh, in the world of trauma, people are very enamored with ACEs. Yet ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences or adversity indices, they tend to, in a sense, count up events outside the body. You know, these things happened. Yet some people experience those and they have no adverse consequences, mm. you know, since they're so we end up with a world of saying, Wow, I've gone through that. Why didn't you? You know, so why are you so sensitive? And words like that we frequently hear. The issue is we shouldn't emphasize the events, we should respect the feelings. And this becomes extremely important in how we relate to others. So if something that we might consider for ourselves trivial and it's disruptive to another person, we have to be respectful. We have to be better witnesses of others. So I played with this terminology, this phrase. So Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, and I'm going to use my horrible friendship, Ponce donc je suis. I think, uh, therefore I am. And I said, what if he were mistranslated? What would the world be like? What if he said, je me sens, I feel myself, using the reflexive form of the word feel, therefore I am. If I feel myself, therefore I am. And this is really what I would say the message of polyvagal theory is, or polyvagal perspective is, I am because of how I feel. And what we can see within our society and our institutions is everything is about numbing our body and numbing and suppressing the feedback of what our body's trying to tell us. And the consequences of that on a neurophysiological level is to disrupt the feedback loops between body and brain. 
we're actively downregulating that, and that leads to, quote, end organ disorders or comorbidities. And medicine has no clue about neuroregulation of end organs. It's all focused on illness in the end organ. If they had an insight into measurement of the neuroregulation, they would see disease state as it developed. And this is just brilliant and uh, and and such a fabulous thing to put out this this nature of um we talk about this that the the dysregulated the disrupted yeah. system there's there's the place to resolve first you can't yeah. resolve that so yeah. just wonderful it's part of learning that we are a complex feedback system. We're feedback systems nested into feedback systems. We need to respect that we are not just a willful, intentional organism. We are affected by that which is around us. And we are not even knowledgeable at this moment of all the features or, let's say, sensory patterns that may disrupt our body. The safe and sound protocol is a sense of decoding of the most obvious. Those features will calm us down. And in polyvagal theory, there are features that we know will disrupt us, like low-frequency sounds or high-pitched squeals. We know that those have specific physiological signaling capacity that change our physiological state for our adaptive success. And we need to be respectful of that. We can't say, get over that. You know, we're human. Respect that. Understand that. And let's get together and think about how we can design a society, a culture, an environment that allows us more of us to flourish. Such an important message. Dr. Stephen Porges, it's been brilliant having you on the show and we thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Matthew. And thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. I hope in the near future, once this is all over, to come back to Australia, which I always have loved visiting. Oh, we, we, we've booked the restaurant already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Looking forward okay. to it. Thank See you. See you there. Uh, that's probably one of the most uh, beautiful and wise and uh, embracing conclusions that, that, yeah. I, that I've ever heard. Uh, yeah. I think just take those last few minutes of what Stephen said and just put that on loop and uh, your life will be your life will be better but uh, uh, i'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to him and, and thanks to everybody who made that possible yeah fantastic I was, it was such a pleasure to I, I was i was saying to you richard beforehand i was a little bit a little bit anxious talking to someone of such great stature but uh he's such a wonderful person he is the most delightful of people absolutely so yeah. there we are we, we we've done another one mm-hmm. now everybody don't forget for us to bring people like stephen porges to your uh speaker it takes a little bit of effort so uh if you'd like to keep us uh going and doing this support us by coming in and don't just support us in some silly way, support it in a way that benefits you, which is just join the Science of Psychotherapy uh, at the Academy at thescienceofpsychotherapy.net and you get all these wonderful uh, opportunities plus a 1,000 hours of learning and videos and, and yeah. just ongoing material. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've been accumulating material since 2013. So there is a, a huge archive, a huge library for you to dig into there. And we'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. We appreciate your time. And until next time. Bye for now. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to the scienceofpsychotherapy.com.